It's always interesting how pastors want me to preach the hard passages so they can go home and have lunch. Well, I get crucified. Yeah, it's, it's like that. Uh, Pete is one of my star students. I'm just delighted that you get to appreciate his ministry. Uh, fun to see friendship grow and faithfulness come out of that. It just, you know, it's just good. And uh, I'm also grateful for my pretty wife, Sherry, who's put up with me for more than 50 years. And uh, it's, uh, they tell me the first 50 years are the hardest. So it's, uh, it's like that. Well, we'll see how it goes. Uh, interesting passage, interesting passage that we read here. When you think about this, uh, this strange, strange passage, I, I've just picked up the title, The Road Less Traveled, because it's talking about two roads. And actually, this morning as we were in the motel, I took a picture out the window of the motel of Mount Bachelor and the whole range over there in the beautiful blue skies here in Bend and, and uh, tweeted it out and said, what should I do? Should I go and follow the road to Antioch Church and preach in this miserably hard passage about the Sermon on the Mount, or shall I go to the Mount? And the answer is, well, my friend Cindy Hone texted back to me and said, both. <laughs> Cindy Hone is the voice of the devil. Yeah, because <laughs> that's the whole point of this thing is you can't do both. That's the whole point, is we want to do both in these kinds of things, and that's worked out. So when I think about this passage you just read, you ever seen anything like this? Are you stuck in the performance hamster wheel? This is from a, this picture is from a, a blog by Mark DeSus. I don't know him at all, but I, the whole point that he's making as he unpacks this in his blog, 10 Steps to Escape the Performance Trap, and there are many others like that, he says this, God is unconditional love. Christianity, the religion of Jesus, is not about performance, but about relationship. And the, the whole point of doing things to win acceptance and approval is a trap, he's saying. And when you get into that trap, it actually ruins your life, ruins your joy, ruins your relationship with Jesus. And he goes on. He says this, you were meant to be loved and affirmed in who you are, not in what you do. You were meant to be loved and affirmed in who you are, not for what you do. Sound good? Sound good? The only thing is, that's not the message of Jesus. That's not the message of the Sermon on the Mount. Well, it's a little more complicated than that. But this is the kind of message that sells really well, but I'm not sure that's the message of Jesus. Because when he unpacks this last section of the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about these warnings... In this passage, he talks about there are two gates as he starts off in verse 13 and 14. And one of the gates is narrow, one of the gates is broad. And he goes on and he talks about two prophets, 15 through 21. And by your fruits you shall know them. And the both prophets sound really good. 
And he says, you've got to be careful. You've got to be discerning in what you do. And then he goes on and he talks about two disciples. The one who says, Lord, Lord. To whom the Lord says, depart from me. I never knew you. And the final section that we won't be covering this morning is about two foundations. Verses 24 to 27, what do you build on the wise and foolish builder? And what he's saying is there are two ways... And he's talking here about people who are doing different kinds of good things. And what I want to do is, here in the moments that we have left, is I want to look at these passages because in this sermon, and Pete did a magnificent job in preaching through this. I've listened to all these sermons, and especially the first one. I thought he just nailed it. The way he ended up that sermon by talking about God's blessing on the marginalized and the forgotten and the broken people was just absolutely magnificent. As he prayed that prayer of blessing over the church at Antioch, it was spot on target. Jesus begins his sermon with unqualified tenderness for the poor in spirit, for the lost, for the broken, for the persecuted, for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Brilliant begins with unqualified tenderness. The way is open to anyone in that beginning as opposed to the the way of of the super disciple kind of thing. But when he ends this up, the kingdom of God is for the least of the people. The very least is the kingdom of God. But he goes on and he ends with unqualified toughness. He ends with his person and his way is the only way to life. Now, which is this? Is this the easy way that's open to all people, or is this the difficult way that requires commitment and discipleship and obedience? Well, let's see. Let's see. He begins with this. Wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many will enter it, but small gate, narrow, that leads life, only a few will find it. So this is the opening thing, the two gates, the two roads. Now, let me just ask you a trivia question. What verse of the Bible is most often quoted by people under 21? What verse of the Bible is most often quoted by sons and daughters, especially to their moms and dads? What verse is that? No. Now, it's a great verse, love John 3.16, beautiful verse, not what kids quote to their parents. Hint, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. Who will give his son a snake? Yeah, well, that's a, I hadn't thought about that one. Yeah, actually, that may be it. Who will give his son a snake? Yeah, yeah, come on, Dad, like, give forth. Yeah, good suggestion. What's what I think of, but well said, well said. It's in chapter 7. In, no, that's good. Again, do to others, you'd have them do unto the golden roll, which again means give it to me, Dad. It's in chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Like, back off, Dad. Right? Are we to be judgmental? Isn't it terrible to be judgmental and say this is right and that is wrong? 
Isn't it better? Isn't it be- Can you really say that sincere people are wrong? Can you really say that people that really deeply believe what they're doing are wrong and do it in the name of Jesus? Isn't it better to do the American approach to morality by taking a poll and majority wins? Isn't that a better way? I mean, who could be un-American like that? What's the answer? Jesus, yeah. Yeah, because he's talking about a different kind of thing. He's talking about there is a broad road that many follow. Don't all roads lead to God? Don't all sincerely held paths, religious ways, lead to the God of the universe? The answer is no. No, they don't. In fact, what Jesus is saying in this whole sermon is there really is one way to Yahweh, the God who created heaven and earth, and all the other roads, and there are a lot of them, actually lead to following the serpent. And one of the themes that runs all through Scripture is the battle between God and his followers and the serpent and his followers. And that's what this is really talking about here. The narrow way is the way of Jesus. The broad, easy way is the road of the serpent. And the great sins of the Old Testament and the New and today come down to two basic things. Jesus summarized it in the Great Commandments in Mark chapter 12. Matthew chapter 22. What's the first summary of Jesus said? He said what? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, strength. The second is like to it. What is it? Mm -hmm. Love your neighbors yourself. What's the first one? Love the Lord your God. It means be loyal to Yahweh and trust what he says as truth. The second, love your neighbors yourself, is do tzadikah and mishpat, do righteousness and justice, seek relationships that are well-ordered as God designed them to be. Of course, that's been the heritage of Antioch for its entire life and will continue to be, I hope. But see, that's the way of Yahweh. It's not the way of the serpent. The way of the serpent is the one that sees God. Well, if you remember in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents, God gives talents to three different servants. One guy gets 10, goes out and makes 10, well done, good and faithful servant. One gets five, makes five, well done, good and faithful servant. One guy gets one and says what? I knew you to be a harsh taskmaster, reaping where you did not sow, taking what you did not earn. Who's he serving? Yahweh, the God of all grace? No, he's serving the serpent. And see, what happens in the serpent's way, it's all about me. And that's what Jesus is responding to here. And it comes out in pretty amazing kinds of things because there's a doctrinal test serving Yahweh only. John 14, 6 says the same kind of thing. And there's the ethical way, the way of Jesus that loves your neighbor even when it means giving up your own comfort and goods for the sake of your neighbor, even the sake of your enemy. The doctrinal test, loyalty to Yahweh, the ethical test, following in the way of Jesus, self-sacrificial love, that's actually quite fulfilling. 
And what he's saying here, well, let's think about tolerance for religions. Should we be tolerant of other religions? Should we be tolerant of other religions? You're all saying, what is he up to? <laughs> You're right. Trick question. Should we be tolerant of other religions? Can we have other religions living with places of worship here in Bend, Oregon? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. Socially, culturally, we're completely tolerant of other religions. We should be. We should, in the name of Jesus, be completely respectful of other people. Should we offer employment to people who are wearing burqas? Yes, of course, of course. Amazing how many people don't want to do that. They say, no, you can't do that. You have to take that burqa off before you can work for me. France has made that a rule of the whole country. Now, I realize I'm stepping on perhaps difficult ground here, but it seems to me in the name of Jesus, we're absolutely socially, culturally, employment-wise, housing-wise, tolerant of other religions. But theologically, we're not. Theologically, we're saying that is a false religion that is actually worshiping the serpent. And that's where we have to hold this balance between at one time saying, no, that's a false path in order to get to Yahweh, in order to achieve salvation. But we completely respect your right to function and live in our community. It's a difficult balance to maintain, but I think that's what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. And he calls us to do that kind of a thing. But remember that theologically, that's not the case. The two are not the same. They are not. They are not. And if you think back to the rest of the sermon, as you've been thinking through it here, Pete's been leading you through it, he's talking about the religion of Jesus, and he begins with the Beatitudes. He comes into the, the authority of Scripture. Don't take away anything from Scripture. And then he comes into those commandments. And he talks about lust and murder and hatred and those kinds of things. And he says, yeah, you don't commit adultery. Good for you. But do you violate the role of justice and respect of persons by lusting after somebody else, sexually and romantically? And he's talking about a much deeper religion than just a religion of practice. He's talking about a religion of the heart. It's not a new thing, but that's what he's saying. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about these two roads. There is the road of external conformance. There, uh, there are conformity. There is a road of internal loyalty to Yahweh. It's a difficult thing to do. There is both. And when he talks about the gate, he's talking coming into the way. And that's the evangelical decision. Do I make a decision to follow Jesus, to make him Lord, to make the confession Jesus is Lord, but then there's an ethical road that's the daily commitment to follow out of my heart the calling of Jesus Christ. The gate and the road, and there are only two. There are only two. One follows Yahweh through Jesus, one follows the serpent through lots of other people. Two roads. Are you done? No, we're not even to the hard part yet. He goes on and he talks about what? Two kinds of prophets. Now what do you see here when you see the, the prophets? They come to you in sheep's clothing. What does sheep mean in scripture? 
What does sheep mean in scripture? Good thing or bad thing? What do you think of sheep? Sheep stink. They're stupid. But that's a metaphor in scripture because they're a lot like us. We stink in a lot of ways and we can be incredibly stupid. These come looking like sheep, but what he's saying here is that inside there are ferocious wolves. And the word is actually stronger than the NIV ferocious because this same word is translated as swindlers and blackmailers in other parts of scripture. These are people who follow the ethic of the serpent. They're out, well, it's in Acts chapter 20 when, Pete, uh, when Paul does the, uh, his Ephesian elder retreat. And he takes them away and he warns them, there will come among you ravenous wolves. It's the same word. And these ravenous wolves will come and out of their own desires will draw disciples to themselves and will mock the very things of Yahweh. It's the same word. These are ravenous wolves that are actually prophets of the serpent, but they look like prophets of Yahweh. How do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference? It's by their fruit. By their fruit. What's fruit? What are the fruit? Well, that's what he's been talking about through this whole sermon. What's the fruit? The fruit is the one who is showing the very character of Jesus. Galatians chapter 5 has the famous fruit, which I can never remember. The, the fruit is, hmm, I thought I had it written down here, but I don't. Well, there you go. We don't know what they are. Can somebody quote the fruit for me from Galatians chapter 5? The fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace. Everybody gets that one. What comes after that? Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What? Yeah, and some others. <laughs> See, what he's talking about is people who follow Jesus. Love, joy, peace. Faithfulness, goodness, self-control, humility, all those kinds of things. The character of the prophet between the good prophet and the false prophet come again doctrinally and ethically. Doctrinally is what? Do they preach that Yahweh is the creator of heaven and earth? Do they preach his character? Where do we find the definitive statement about the character of Yahweh? Well, the Bible quotes itself all the time. And there's one verse in the Bible that the Bible quotes more often than any other verse in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. I've said this before, and you all remember it, right? What is that verse that's the most quoted verse in Scripture? It's John 3.16, if you will, of Scripture. Do you remember what it is? It's Exodus 34.6-7. It's after the golden calf, after they set up this calf that is like Baal, the god of the Canaanites. And God is outraged. And he and Moses have this conversation. And then Moses says, show me your glory. I want to see you without the cloud. 
And Yahweh says he can't do that because he would kill you to do that. But I'll tell you what, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and then I will pass by and you will see the trail of my passing, whatever that is. Moses says, where do I sign the contract? And he climbs up the mountain, Exodus 34, and Yahweh passes by and he says, as he passes by, he proclaims the most quoted verse in the Bible, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, faithful, just, sorry, faithful, loving, forgiving, and just. No more words to that. What is the character of our God? He has a name he wants to relate. To whom does he want to relate? Golden calf worshipers, if they will repent. He is compassionate. He cares. About whom? Moses and golden calf worshipers. And offers them the kind of call that Jesus done at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He is gracious. I will help. Whom will he help? Moses and golden calf worshippers, if they will accept his help. And see, the irony is how many of the golden calf worshippers say, I don't need your help. I don't trust you. I got a better God. And they refuse the help of the God of the universe. See, that's the test of the prophet. What is the God they preach? And who is the Jesus they preach? The ethical test is what does their life look like? And see, that's one of my gripes against prophets so often is the major prophets of our world, they don't live here. Oh, they teach here via YouTube or guest work or something like that, but you never really get to know them. They're not part of us. And then you can't tell what's your life like. Are you doing what you're preaching? Does the fruit of your life look like the fruit of the Spirit? And that's the test. That's the fruit. What kind of fruit comes out of true prophets? They're reaching in the lives of golden calf worshipers and helping them find the way of the Master. What they're not doing is setting up their own kingdoms, setting up their own moralities, setting up their own unique ways to find enlightenment or whatever, the ways of the prophets. And what he's saying is that when you look at their fruit, you do not get grapes from thorn bushes and you do not get figs from thistles. So look at the tree. Look at the fruit of the tree. The second test. It's a, it's a pretty amazing thing. One of the tests, H. Richard Niebuhr did a, book a good while back, well, back in the 40s, 1940s, The Kingdom of God in America, and in this, he said the test is, do they preach a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross? A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's the kind of question you ask when you're listening to a prophet. What is the character of God they preach? What is the character of the life they live? Which says you need to live with somebody to see what that is like. Now I'll predict to you, and I'll predict with confidence, as you guys get to know Pete better and see his work now as lead pastor at Antioch, you're going to find a prophet 
who is a terrific follower of Jesus. And your job will be to help him be better in that way as he and Jen live among you, pastor among you, preach your funerals, baptize your children, and help you find that way to Jesus. But here's the thing. If you see him kicking off a little bit, what do you do? You go to your Twitter account, you go to your Facebook account and tell everybody what a jerk he is, right? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Because what you do at that point, you sit down like, Pete, I don't understand what's going on. And you help him because all of us need that accountability and you and your church are a point of accountability for the leadership of this church. That's that give and take of a good church as you proclaim the way of Jesus here in Bend and the surrounding communities. First test, two gates. Second test, two prophets. Third test is the corker. This one's hard. This one's hard. This one's hard. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me out of that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name drive out demons? And in your name do for many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. That one's tough. That one's tough. Do these people have their doctrine right? Are these people confessing Jesus is Lord? Are these people confessing Jesus is Lord? Yes or no? They are. They are. Are they doing godly works? They're preaching good sermons in the name of Jesus. They're driving out demons in the name of Jesus. They're doing miracles in the name of Jesus. And what does Jesus say to them? I never knew you away from me. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? This is why Pete gave me this sermon. <laughs> because what he's saying is he's speaking to people like you and me. And he's saying some of you do not know Jesus, really. Are you doctrinally correct? Yeah. Yeah. Is there a warm emotional life to your Christian life? Yes. Because this way of saying, Lord, Lord, that's an emotional kind of thing. You repeat it like that. When Jesus comes down and sees Mary all taken aback because Lazarus is dead, she says, he says, Mary, Mary. It's that deep emotional connection. Are they doing good works? Absolutely. They're driving out demons. They're doing miracles. They're speaking the word of God in the name of Jesus. 
How do you deal with this? Common doctrine, common emotion, common works with all of us, but some are not followers of Jesus. And he's talking about us. He's not talking about people who pray and people who don't pray. Actually, this is not new. Remember back in chapter 6? What did he begin chapter 6 with? He talked about people who are giving. He went to people who are praying. He went to people who are fasting. He's not talking about people who are doing good works and evil works. He's talking about people who are doing good works. And now he's bringing it to a conclusion. And what he's saying here is there are people sitting in this room. I mean, clearly, Pete already told you you're among the elite because you're here, right? He's talking about people among the elite who Jesus will say to you in the day of judgment, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, if that didn't make beads of of sweat break out on your brow, I mean, what would? What would? What do we do with this? What's the difference between a, a person who gives and prays and fasts who's connected with Jesus and the one who isn't? How do you tell the difference? See, this is the most, most, most challenging, and a most scary passage. He didn't say you lost your salvation. He said you never had it. I never knew you. How do you make sense out of that? How do you work with that? Three times. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? Like, what's up, Jesus? And the trick is to say that now, not later. What's the key? Well, what is re- That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's relationship. That's exactly right. How do you tell whether you've got a relationship with God or not? Hmm? Fruit. What are the fruit? Love, joy, peace, and those six others that I can never remember. I know people that have all kinds of love, joy, peace that Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. If this is true. It seems to me that he's already approached this back in chapter 6 in particular. It goes on in other places. But he's talking about people who give. Beginning of chapter 6. They're giving alms to the poor. That is a good work. It's justice. It's taking care of the worthless person, so-called. What's the difference between the true and the false disciple there in Matthew chapter 6? The false disciple does it for whom? For himself. How do we know that? Mm -hmm. Exactly. He wants the reward. The true disciple is doing it for whom? For Jesus, who gets the honor in the first guy's life? I do. I'm doing it so I will be noticed. I pray so people say, oh my, what a spiritual prayer. 
And if I'm doing it for my benefit, primarily, that's the false disciple. Now, the true disciple, does the true disciple ever get benefit from his good works? Does the true disciple ever get honored for the good things he does for the kingdom of God? Yes or no? Yes. Who gets first honor? It's always Jesus. And see, that's something that's hard to tell from the outside. This is actually a test for us. When you look at it, when you look at your life, who is it that you most want to be famous? And this is an internal test, but it's done with people who know you well. Who is the motivator in your life? And if the motivator is, I want to be well thought of, then you may not be a kingdom person. Here's the test, it seems to me. The biggest test that I see comes in how you handle sin in your life. Let me just show of hands. How many of you sinned even once in the past six months? Okay. About two-thirds of you. Pretty, God, pretty, I don't know, Pete, you could even work harder in this crowd. Yeah. I, how do you handle sin in your life? See, I think that's the biggest question. I think back to Samuel and Saul and David. Saul and David both got a full dose of the Holy Spirit, changed men who went out in glorious victories for God as their first act as changed men. Both king of Israel. When Saul did a sin, didn't wait for Samuel the way he was supposed to, didn't destroy the Amalekites as he was supposed to, and Samuel came and said, what's the deal? What did Saul do? He blame shifted. You didn't come when you said you're going to come. He minimized. Well, I killed most of them. He spiritualized. I kept the good stuff so I could worship God. And those kinds of things. David, Bathsheba, killing Uriah, all the things he did in 2 Samuel 11. When Nathan came and said, you're the man, what did David say? I've sinned to the Lord. He wrote Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. In both cases, said what? I've sinned. I did it. It was wrong. Help. No minimizing. No blame shifting. No, you got to understand. No I did it for spiritual reasons, nothing like that. He, when he convicted by the Holy Spirit, he said, oh my gosh, oh my God, help me. And when I look in real life, I think that's the biggest test between the person who does good things in the name of Jesus but does not know God and God does not know him and the person who 
does not know God. How do you handle sin in your life? We all have it. Do you find yourself hating the sin and will do anything most abject humiliation if necessary in order to be rid of the sin? Or do you become self-protective and try to get around it? I think that's the biggest test. On the pastoral side of my life, I deal with some of the nastiest stuff there is. Domestic violence, philandering spirits, theft, I mean, the stuff. And this is among pastors. This is among Christians. And my goal is when I run across people who don't want to face their own sin is I want to introduce them to the God of the universe. Remember this? The performance hamster wheel. Remember? God is unconditional love. Christian is not about performance, about relationship. True or false? Partially true. Is Christian about performance? Yes or no? Yes. Read the Sermon on the Mount. It is about following. The person that Jesus says, I never knew you, says, because you do not do my will. See, that's the trick is whose will is important around here. And for people who know Jesus as Lord, we're going to say, wherever you go, I will follow. Even if it means awful things for me. It is about performance, but not about getting through the gate. It absolutely is, are you meant to be loved and affirmed in who you are? Well, not all of me. Is God going to affirm the competitive spirit that runs deep in my psyche? Sherry, pretty wife. Is God going to affirm my competitive spirit? No, she says. <laughs> no. Does God love me even with my competitive spirit that can be very, very harmful to other people? Yes, but he's going to help me change. See, this is helpful to me. Acceptance, the gate. Acceptance or membership in the family of Yahweh does not depend in any way on my character or behavior. It depends totally on accepting his gift through Jesus. How do I get through the gate? It's totally by saying, Lord, I've got to have your help. I don't have to do anything to build my resume to get into God's kingdom, get into be a part of God's family. Nothing. But, this is the second part, approval or maturity in the family of Yahweh depends increasingly on my faithfulness of living out his life. But that life that he's given me, he gives me his spirit, his body, and his encouragement to help me do this. Is Christianity about performance? At this level, is Christian about performance? Not even slightly. At this level, is Christian about performance? Yes. Yes. And see, that's the tension that we face. Is he calls us to accept his help to live out the way of Yahweh. And the person who says, 
I'm going to do it my way. Frank Sinatra's famous song is saying to Jesus, I don't know you. And to that person, Jesus is going to say, I don't know you. What he does say is, given me who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, he says. I'd like us to stand as we finish here. This is an ancient prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. And what I want to do is I want us to pray this prayer together. And then we'll have the tables open down here in front. For all of us who need the help of Yahweh, his spiritual food and drink is here and we'll partake that together. But this prayer is from the Book of Common Prayer that says very well the relationship between this different dimension, the easy gate of coming in that's open to all people, but then the path of obedience and discipleship that says we make every effort to follow our Lord on a daily basis. Let's pray this prayer together. Almighty God, who has given thine only Son to be unto us both a sacrifice for sin and also an example of godly life, give us grace that we may always most thankfully receive that his inestimable benefit and also daily endeavor ourselves to follow the blessed steps of his most holy life through the same, thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.